uh, big driver for me is ensuring that at the heart of this is decriminalising the young people that are in care. And I take quite a hard stance on anybody that's criminalised just because they're in care. For me, gone are the days where we measure things purely on frequency. And what we need to be doing is looking at risk now, rather than pure frequency. And that's by involving all agencies and making sure that all that information is gathered and shared in the correct forum. It's building that richer picture. Is anybody moving into that sphere of working with these young people that are in care on the edge of care? It's that big push of let's not treat them worse because they're in care. They've already had this bad hand in life dealt to them. And I think we owe it to them to level the playing field as much as we possibly can. Hello, I'm Steve Myers. I'm a trustee of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and I'm your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Detective Sergeant Matthew Garland Collins about safeguarding children in and on the edge of care. We discuss the vulnerabilities at play for these children, what Matthew and his team are doing to tackle this problem and what all child protection professionals ought to know and do to protect these children. Matthew Garland Collins joined North Yorkshire Police in 2003, initially working on the Uniform Response Team until 2006 when he began work with the Criminal Investigation Department and was promoted to Detective Sergeant in 2012. In May 2013, he took the role on as Intelligence Detective Sergeant and in 2015 began oversight of the police involvement with the No Wrong Door programme. Since September last year, he has been the Harm Reduction, Missing from Home and No Wrong Door Intelligence Sergeant for North Yorkshire Police where he spends much of his time working with care homes to reduce the number of children going missing across Yorkshire. Children in care are statistically more likely to be reported as missing, subsequently becoming influenced or groomed by the wrong people. This is why Matthew and his team are working to address why this behaviour is occurring so they can reduce the number of young people going missing. Matthew, thank you for speaking to us today and welcome. Thank you. Perhaps you could start off by telling us about what your key experiences are at the moment with uh, young people on the edge of care. Well, they've obviously got more than one or two key issues. My experience basically came with the introduction of the No Wrong Door programme in North Yorkshire, which were a local authority funded project where the police actually became quite a significant part of that. And that was basically looking at all the young people that were in residential care, but also those that were on the edge of care. And my interpretation of edge of care is if there's not an intervention that takes place, they will eventually end up in care. And as you outlined at the beginning, it doesn't give the best long-term prospects for children to be brought up in a care situation. The way that project ran is basically to have two hubs and each of those hubs we have an embedded police officer an embedded psychologist and a speech and language therapist that refuse as a communication expert who work alongside the key workers in those hubs to get a real deep all-round understanding of the children that are in their care so we can come up with a better safeguarding risk management plan if you like what we have seen as the police from this new sort of approach and ethos 
of children that are in that situation is really significant reductions in our missing from home figures from that cohort of children. In the, the first 18 months, the project has been continually assessed by Loughborough University, I believe it is, and they produced a report that showed actually in the first 18 months we reduced missing episodes by 68% which is obviously of a huge demand and cost saving for the police. The arrests went down by 38%, charges were down by over 50%. And as an aside to that, you know, the figures are more significant. We saw like hospital admissions going down by over 90%. And we're trying to work out, is that related to the dropping drug use or the, the dropping missing episodes that are resulting in a hospitalisation, etc.? Those are fantastic figures to see and a real testament to the success of the, the project and the intervention. So perhaps would you mind, Matthew, telling us a bit more about how you do that? You know, what does that intervention look like for a young person? I mean, it's a continually evolving system, really. We have now moved towards, as I we, that's me and my team, taking what we've learned from the No Wrong Door experience and trying to expand that out into all care settings. So for the past 12 months, I've been trying to actively engage all the private care homes that are in our policing area. And the way that we monitor the, the missings now is every day we look at every single missing episode, myself and my team, to ascertain whether we've got the process right with that, whether we've done a safe and well check or prevention interview or management of return, whatever terms people want to use for that, have the police physically had that meeting with that child, have we notified the local authority so they can get their return home interview set up and done, and also so that work is not going in blind as to what that episode was about. Then, importantly, what we do every week is we've established the senior social worker for each of our areas. So for North Yorkshire, there's generally four areas. We have East, West, Central, and then City of York. Each of those has a essentially a specialist social worker that's concerned with missing from home, stroke exploitation. We meet with those social workers every week and go through every single missing episode on their area to see whether they have any concerns. We're monitoring whether they received the management of return from the police and whether we have then got their return home interview. And do those two interviews marry up? Are there any discrepancies? Is there something that's making this episode not sit quite right with us? And if there is anything in there, then we can have a joint risk assessment done between the both of us to work out what is the best thing to assist this child going forward. And what we've learned through the, the No Wrong Door is sometimes it can be really, really basic things, whether it's missings or crimes. I often use the example of a young person who was constantly being arrested for a breach of bail conditions. I started off with one minor offence. They would be arrested. They would kick off with police, they'd get extra charges for assault police, they'd be released with the same bail conditions, the bail conditions would be broke, they'd kick off, they'd assault it. And all of a sudden, you, you get this downward spiral for this kid. What it turned out were, the bail conditions we were giving them were not to go to a certain road. They had no concept of where that actually was. 
you've got to remember when these kids are in custody and we as police we say to them these are your bail conditions do you agree they will agree to anything just to get out of custody sometimes they don't really understand and on this occasion is the speech and language therapist who diagnosed this if you like took this young person to the road and said from this phone box to the cinema at the end of the road you're not allowed on this particular bit and those bail conditions were never breached again it was something as simple as that to stop that descent into criminalization yeah that's a really good example Matthew. It's, it's, it strikes me it's uh, something that appeals to me it's very pragmatic very practical very straightforward and sometimes that's what's needed it is and it's it's that education that's needed on both sides of the fence because to be fair that's something uh, on the police side that we've learned things are much much better now but educating the homes about what the limitations and expectations of the police should be when should you report a child missing and again a very recent meeting that i've had with a placement where a young person's been reported missing I go, about nine times in two months and as we went through those episodes actually this person was telling them where she was going and why she's 17 years old she's not missing she's just not where they wanted her to be at that particular time no identified risks that anybody could see and once we've established that then you can say well actually because of the police interviews and the return home interviews and then the home will speak to you about that episode as well that's 27 interviews in two months that this child has had that were totally unnecessary and, th and then we wonder why they're not keen to engage with any of us about talking about well what are the drivers for you going missing because this person never were missing she was being a 17 year old seeing a friend's boyfriend whatever it is yeah that's one of the challenges that young people are looked after face isn't it they're not always allowed to have that what would be a normal life no and a big driver for me is ensuring that at the heart of this is decriminalizing the young people that are in care and i take quite a hard stance on anybody that's criminalized just because they're in care and again you can take examples from your missing from homes where if you have five 16 year olds who have all told their parents they're going to a party and they'll be back by 11 o'clock but they decide not to and they stay in the park and they're going to drink cider and do whatever else they're going to do the thing is that if they're in care historically the care home is very very quick to pick the phone up to the police and report that child is missing now five of them were in the same situation four have gone home been picked up by the pet whatever and been told off only the child in care has had a uniform police officer turned up in a marked van which this one knew to me when i started doing it it's really embarrassing for the young people for the police to turn up for them it's a real sense of embarrassment but they've put them into the back of that van they've taken them back to the care home they've interviewed them the social workers come around a couple of days later and interview them. Their key workers interview them about it. That's only happened because they're in care, and that, that's not fair, that they get that much magnifying glass on their lives unnecessarily. It wouldn't happen in a family setting, so why, why are we making it happen to people that are already disadvantaged? I think the Howard League have almost proven beyond doubt that actually interactions with the police are very, very rarely helpful unless you're the victim of a crime, really especially for a teenager. Yeah, and it does take me back, Matthew, to uh, some years ago. I remember 
when I was a, a social worker working with young people in trouble. And occasionally I was asked to be appropriate adults on young people who'd broken a window at the care home. Yeah. The police had been called, they'd been arrested, and they were taken and prosecuted, charged with criminal damage. I'm not sure that would have happened if it had been you know, a child in, the, in, a, in a family, their own family home. You know, I think there's no. a different way of sometimes as a, approaching young people who are in care. There is, and again, a central tenant, and I carry this across from no wrong door, right at the heart of it, saying, is this good enough for my child? So in any care setting where we're talking about appropriate curfews and actions and things like that, I say, well, what do you expect me to do? My expectation as that child's carer is to have the same reaction as if it were your own child. Because most of us, you know what I mean, in my circle of friends, most of us have got children. I've got kids that have, you know what I mean, one's still a teenager, one's a bit more grown up now. But have they stayed out past a curfew? Absolutely. Have had an inappropriate boyfriend? Have they been out drinking and told me that they were going out to have jelly and ice cream? They've done all those things. I have never, ever felt the need to pick the phone up to the police because what I do is you phone them, you phone the friends, the friends' parents, get in your car and go and have a look for them because we've got the best chance of finding them because we, as their parents or their carers, should care more about that kid than the response officer that's working that night. And it shows that child that that person cares about them. That's really interesting, Matthew, and I think a real... So it shows the values involved in how we work with, with young people who are vulnerable. Something me, you mentioned earlier, actually, about you know, missing children and exploitation. And mm-hmm. I think something there about you know, the potential for exploitation and what that forms that might take. And I just wondered if you could sort of tell us a bit more about, about that, about how the service thinks about the exploitation of young people. I suppose the the sort of key phrase at the moment everybody's using is this contextual safeguarding, which is something that's been in place right from the beginning, certainly through the No Wrong Door service, where, again, historically, you can look at any incident you like, and if you look at that incident in isolation, it can be dealt with appropriately with the factors that are just contained within that one incident. What we try to do is to look at it in a more contextual manner about, well, actually, if this young person goes missing, we might have a real concern because of these other concerns that are happening in that young person's life at this time. For me, gone are the days where we measure things purely on frequency. And what we need to be doing is looking at risk now rather than pure frequency. And that's by involving all agencies and making sure that all that information is gathered and shared in the correct forum. It's building that richer picture. The No Wrong Door model takes it to that sort of next level, if you like, because you get the clinical and psychological input into what the triggers are. Then we can look at a little bit more deeply. Yeah. That's really helpful. And I, I share your analysis of that. This contextual safeguarding is very a sort of good way of thinking about practices, I think, now. Perhaps if you could tell us a bit more about, I mean, you talked about that insight, that psychological understanding of what triggers were and so on. Yeah. I think listeners would be really interested to hear more about that direct practice with young people. What, what... Yeah, what really separated the No Wrong Door model out in the beginning is the mental health or any problems with autism and communication 
it's really difficult for kids because I think, and I don't know whether this is nationwide, and please, I'm not an expert on this, but to get a CAMS appointment or something like this for one of these kids it is difficult. And these are the kids that won't turn up at four o'clock on a Tuesday. Their life is so chaotic. And again, a real big awakening for me that a lot of these kids will present to you as, you know, I mean, they'll say they're understanding everything. Some can't put the days of the week in the correct order. And so giving them a 2.30 appointment on Wednesday and then when they're not turning up thinking, well, they're not interested, it's not always the case. So they have to have a massive rethink of this. And so the psychologist is embedded in that hub. They're there when they get out of bed. He may well sit down and have breakfast with them. He might help them cook the dinner. They might sit down and have a cup of tea. They might watch a television programme together. These kids are getting that appointment that they would have had with CAMS without even knowing that they're having that appointment. And it can happen at any time because they're embedded there. And same with the speech and language therapist. They're done with appointments. These are just people that work in the hub where they live. Mm. And they're their friends. They're part of their care team. That's really interesting to hear that sort of move away from expecting young people who are, as you pointed out earlier, disadvantaged, that they may not be able to access services that we think are perfectly reasonable because they don't meet where they're at. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the whole point of No Wrong Door is bringing together this place where you're not having to have a separate appointment to do all these different things. And again, it's pretty old hat now, but anybody that's been through that system will tell you they get fed up of telling their story again and again and again with every professional that they meet. So this is this group of people that set up like a family structure where actually these people care for them on a personal level. It just so happens that one of them's a qualified psychologist, one's a qualified speech and language therapist, one works for the police. They're set up as carers, basically. They, they care about this young person. That's fantastic to hear. And I think that's sort of back to what it should be. It's about care, isn't it? It's about these young people who are being cared for. They're in our state care. You need to demonstrate that through the actions that you just described. Yeah. It's really fantastic to hear. Obviously, you're in North Yorkshire. Yeah. yeah. So how many people are involved in delivering this service, Matthew, at the moment? From a police point of view, yeah. the no wrong door, there is myself as the sergeant. I have a police constable in the west of the county and a police member of staff in the east of the county. And then sat centrally, there is a, an analyst who's also employed by the police. So four of us in total. Right. And how many young people do you see over the year, do you think? It might be difficult given the continuity issues, but how many young people have you engaged with? Any, and again, I, I've not got the figures in front of me, but at any one time, there tends to be 40 in the East, 40 in the West-ish, so 80 at any one time. But obviously, it rolls on. Some yeah. people come in, some people come out. So it will be in the, the hundreds in the time that we've been doing it. And I'll say that the Loughborough University study is available online now, which will obviously dig down into those figures a, a lot better than I can. And it's just to say that that only exists in the North Yorkshire part of North Yorkshire Police. It doesn't exist in City of York because that's a separate local authority. So the other half of my job, if you like, the missing from home, obviously we don't just look at one cohort, we look at the entire police force area. That's really interesting. 
I'm just trying to get a sense of that sort of scope of the service, really, because uh, North Yorkshire's mate, it's a big place. It is. It's huge, and it brings its own problems, but it also brings its own benefits. And I mean, and one of the things that is really commendable by the local authority is that we no longer place children out of area, which nationally is a big, big problem. Is out of area placements because you're removing children from their friends, family, or the local connections, even the professionals that, you know what I mean, if, if you've got a really good local care home manager, they'll know the local police, the local housing, and be able to assist this young person as they grow up. If they're out of area, you, you lose those local contacts, and that's very, very difficult to do. So I'm uh, massively proud of the fact that North Yorkshire don't place their children out of area. That is made easier by the fact that we are a very big county. Mm. Yeah, and I'm just, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking, and you mentioned private care homes earlier as well. I was wondering whether there are any out-of-county placements within North Yorkshire, and do you work with those young people as well? Yes, we do. I said it's something that only in the last 12 months since I took on the uh, the new role, but I now have regular meetings with the private care home providers because it dawned on us that we were getting a really good, by the weekly meetings with the social workers, we're getting a really good understanding of those kids. But actually, those social workers are not aware of the out-of-area placements. And much as we'd like to, we, we don't have the capacity to force those links with every social worker in every different region. What we can find time to do is to do work with the homes. Now, again, the biggest non-local authority home that we had, I did look at some figures for those. We started working with those, as I say, about a year ago. And interesting that the figures are almost the same. When we looked at the first three quarters of 2019, to the first three quarters of 2020, we saw a 67% reduction in the missing from home reports and an almost 80% reduction in calls for service to the police. That was simply by forging the relationship with the manager at the home and implementing a really easy flowchart, if you like, of what does a missing home plan look like. So as soon as you get a, a child that's placed with you, tell us about this child, what you know. They should all come with a risk plan anyway then if it looks like that's somebody that's likely to go missing or likely to cause you huge problems, because please don't misunderstand me, most kids that are in the care system are neither persistent missing from homes, neither are they criminals. Most are just coming from a very unfortunate set of circumstances and they're doing the best to get on with the life. But for the ones that come that are posing a problem for services, let's get a joint plan in place. Let's agree what's going to happen if this very likely set of circumstances unfold. And what we need to take out of there is the very old-fashioned thinking of, right, well, first of all, simply saying no to them generally doesn't work when they're 17 years old. You know what I mean? So you're left with two choices. You either come up with a plan that contains some risk or you stick with plan A, which is tell them no, and they're going to do it anyway. But now... They're missing. We don't know where they are. We don't know where they're getting the money from. They're not answering the phone because they know that you'll call the police. It's a nightmare. Plan B is not perfect, but let's get the best plan B that we can possibly have. And again, let's talk reasonably about curfew times. Let's talk reasonably about what we expect of your staff. Again, we've had one recently where it's a very rural location. It's near a train station. The chances are that if one of their kids go missing, they're going to get on a train. 
So what we're saying to your staff is, make sure you've got a mask, make sure you've got money so you can follow that child to the train station because we've had it before where they've gone there, no money to get on the train, no mask, worried about COVID, child disappears on a train. That's not a good starting point for us. A better starting point is have it in your policy that your staff that are there overnight have some money and a mask ready to go, you know what I mean, as part of their grab bag. Yeah. You uphold that end of your bargain and we'll look at what, what the police response plan will be. And that might be, let's cut down the time we're going to ask on a question set and get somebody to the train station. If it's a high-risk individual, it almost needs to be a trigger plan to just get to the train station first and we'll sort the detail out afterwards. Yeah. So it sounds really interesting. It's sort of a, a risk management approach rather than a risk avoidance approach, if you see what I mean. You know, it's recognising the reality of life's complicated. Won't all go to plan, and yeah, you need those uh, contingency plans in place to try and. It is, and we can't wrap these young people in cotton wool because, and again, especially when they're coming into residential care, what I'm seeing is that it's more and more at age 15, 16, 17, they seem to be coming into care later and later into that residential care. And we have to be doing something to prepare them for adulthood when that safety net of a care home is not there. And by simply saying, no, you're not allowed to go out, stay in your room, yeah, that keeps them massively safe. But what life skills are we giving them? You know what I mean? Again, it goes back to, is it good enough for my own child? I wouldn't do that with my own child. Your own child, you send them on their way to learn a bit about the world, and your role as parent or carer is when they fall over to dust them down, debrief what went wrong, Let's try and learn from it. Let's go again. And again, to take that a step further, what we try and do within the No Wrong Door model is those hubs have some supported living accommodation that is attached but separate from the hub. It's a taster flat. So as these kids are coming up 17, they might be sent to go and stop on their own one day a week. And if that goes well, then they can go for a week. And if that goes well, then they stop for a week. If that goes well, 10 days, but actually... Ninth day, the bad party, everything's gone wrong. They come back, dust them down, learn from it. Because again, historically, I think we just get to 18 and we say bye bye, see ya. They've never had any experience of managing their own living. And so it's a really nice idea to have this taste of flat of gradual introduction into independence with that little bit of a safety net that that bed is not closed at the hub at the residential setting. The bed is still there, that's their bed. Mm until such time as they are ready for independent living. Yeah. And again, if my kids ever leave home, I'm sure that when they first leave, it won't all be a dream. You know what I mean? They're going to have to come back because something's gone wrong or they need help with something. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Matthew. I think the um, yeah, the way we approach young people, and I think I think allowing young people to take some risks in a managed way is yeah. right young people in care as it is right for young people who are living with their, their families not in state care you know absolutely absolutely we don't get to choose their friends we, we can provide protection against those who we think are going to offer serious harm to them but we don't get to choose all of the friends yeah just thinking about that last aspect about there are people out there who wish to do them harm you know and i think we sort of couch it now in terms of various mm-hmm. types of exploitation criminal, drug, whatever, yeah. you know. So I'm just wondering what your experience of that, those forces of exploitation are out there in terms of, you know, the, the, the work. Yeah, the roles, the police roles when it was first set up was set up as an intelligence role. And, you know what I mean, it, it's not 
specifically from the young people, but from the other professionals who are working with these young people. They're social workers in and out of everywhere, in every area. If there's anybody that's going to be exploited and targeted and victimised, it will be kids in care. And unfortunately, the people that would exploit know that. I've said since we've been doing this job, it's dawned on me more and more that as police, we're not equipped to safeguard the young people as much as other people might think we are. But we can certainly enable that safeguarding by channeling the decision-making through through the right specialists. What we are very, very good at, though, is looking at those that would exploit them. Because usually behind any of those undesirable behaviours, there's going to be an adult connected somewhere. And that's where I'd expect my colleagues in the police when we say, actually, this person that's been missing three times and arrested twice in this area, it's that address. There's something not right at that address. We think that there might be dealing going on from here, or we might think these people are getting young people to go out and pinch bikes to order or whatever it might be. That's very, very much the police's role, is to identify those adults that would exploit the young people. Yeah, and I think that that's really heartening to know and hear, because I think that's the other half of the equation, isn't it? I mean, they're vulnerable young people, but they're vulnerable because there are people out there willing to exploit them. The two go together, really. So just to deal, as we have done, I think, historically, deal with the young people themselves, that will never deal with the whole problem because externally, you know, out in the community, there are those exploitative people just waiting to pick them up. Yeah, absolutely. And we will deal with those people. And again, the, the benefit to the police that's maybe been, been lost a little bit before, and if I cast my mind back a year or so against a uh, serious assault that were reported against a uh, young girl, where we can very quickly speak with the, again, the psychologist, communication specialist, and decide, right, when to speak to her, where to speak to her, how to ask the questions, what type of interview does it need to be? And crucially, something that, please, we've been appalling at asset doing, what's the plan after that interview's finished? Once, maybe we do get what we want, maybe we don't, but what's the plan? Because don't come and drop this person back somewhere with no plan of what's going to happen after that. And that's where I see the massive changes with the psychologists and what have you that say, well, actually, if she's going to come back between 12 and 1, this is what we have planned for when she's returned. Whether it's that she needs lots and lots of space, whether it's that she needs to be taken out somewhere completely different, whether it's the fact that, actually, please don't bring her back to the home, we will come and collect her from the police station, whatever it might be. We're actually thinking wider than just the offence and the interview. It's putting the child at the centre of the decision-making rather than the organisation. Yeah, that's that's fantastic, Matthew, to hear. Yeah, like I said, really heartwarming to see such fantastic practices that, like you say, do place that child absolutely centre of everything in terms of process and decision-making. That's great. Yeah. Any sort of uh, key messages you've got, Matthew, for our audience out there around these issues? Uh, anybody moving into that sphere of working with these young people that are in care on the edge of care, it's that big push of let's not treat them worse because they're in care. They've already had this bad hand in life dealt to them, and I think we owe it to them to level the playing field as much as we possibly can. Thanks for that, Matthew. I know it'll give people a lot to think about. 
about how we view and value these young people in our collective care. So thanks for that and good luck to you and all of your colleagues for the fantastic work that you've been doing. Thanks, Matthew. No problem. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes, email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk. And if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.